Father, we ask now that you will be our teacher. Lord, I pray that you'll give us understanding and clarity of thought. Lord, we're dealing tonight with the subject that many Christians find controversial. But Lord, I pray that no one, else, no one here will, because Lord, it's your word. And Lord, what you say goes. Father, we just ask that you'll really move amongst us now. Lord, enable me as I speak. And Lord, enable everybody else as they hear. Because Lord, we need to know the teaching of your word on everything. So Father, just bless us now, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. What we've got to move on to now is that somewhere there must be some ultimate muscle if particular individuals, even in the last resort, refuse to respond to what the Bible says. And it's what the Bible teaches about putting believers out of fellowship. The Bible teaches, as we are going to see, that there is a time and there are circumstances when individuals ought to actually be put out of the church, forbidden to be part of the church, not allowed to come anymore. And it's that that we're going to deal with tonight. Go to Matthew 18 and let's begin by immediately seeing this in the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Let's begin reading. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along, and every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if any, um, if any of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. So here we're seeing from the teaching of Jesus that there is a time to put people out of the church. Let's just look at this order of procedure in uh, verses 15 to 17. We're dealing here where sin has been committed against someone, all right? So you might be in a situation you think someone has grievously sinned against you, all right? Now then, stage one, the personal approach. You go to your brother. Now that seems fair enough. If you've got a complaint against someone, you go to them. You don't go to everyone else in the church. Neither do you go to the elders. Your first approach is to the person, all right? Now, number two, if they refuse to admit that they've been wrong, if you still get no joy, then you take independent witnesses. These aren't people loaded. These aren't people on your side. This isn't a setup. 
This is just taking people along who can be independent witnesses as to what happened. Now, there are two things they have to establish. First of all, they have to establish that a sin, biblically speaking, has happened. Like, for instance, if someone is all upset, all so-and-so has sinned against me, and you find out the reason was that they said something scriptural that you didn't like, then, all right, you may well be upset, but that's not a biblical sin. So, obviously, it's got to be ascertained that a sin has actually been done, all right? And then, secondly, proof must be established. There are always situations where when you get two people together who've got a grievance, you can find it's a misunderstanding. And the whole thing ends up one person saying, oh, 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 sorry, is that what you meant? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, oh, I do feel silly. Here's a, a straight <laughs> misunderstanding between people. So the witnesses are there to establish the truth of everything that has happened, all right? And uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul re-establishes this principle that no charge must be accepted except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And we'll be going to that verse later on. Now then, stage three. Let's assume now, okay, that it has been established that sin has happened and the person hasn't listened to you, they haven't listened to the witnesses and then finally they haven't listened to the church and the person still refuses to listen. Jesus then said if it gets to that stage that you must treat that person who has sinned and who refuses to admit they've sinned and get right with God you must treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, that's what Jesus said. Now, you'll remember when we did the tradition series, this thing about Gentile and tax collectors was quite simply this. Under the teaching of Pharisaic Judaism at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees forbade you to have anything to do with Gentiles or anything to do with tax collectors. And what Jesus is saying is that there can come a time when someone is in sin and refusing to be honest about it, there comes a time when the church must have nothing more to do with them. I.e., the people must be, the person concerned must be put out of the church. And there we see it in the teaching of Jesus. Now, we need to see that there are two areas of offence that can qualify for this. <laughs> so if anyone wants to get kicked out of this church, all right, here are two areas to work on. The first area is false teaching, and the second area is moral behaviour or immoral behaviour, i.e. living a life <laughs> that doesn't quite come up to biblical scratch, as we'll see. Let's, let's take the first one first, false teaching. All right, false teaching. Now, we've seen again and again the warnings in the Bible against false teaching. Let's, let's have a look at some of them, just to see where we're at. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, starting at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge, means order, command, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than divine training that is in faith. 
i.e. anything that's peripheral to the Bible, don't, don't get stuck down in it. Whereas the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. So there's one warning. Go over into chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Go over into 2 Timothy, chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be urgent in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, be unfailing in patience and in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Alright, go back into Acts. The passage when Paul says his bye-bye little teaching session to the elders in the Ephesian church, Acts 20, verse 29. <clears throat> he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And there's one more, go over into Titus. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. He must hold firm to the sure word as taught, this is talking about elders, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to confute those who contradict it. For there are many insubordinate men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for base gain what they have no right to teach. Now there you have it, the warnings in the Bible of the danger of false teaching. If Satan gets false teaching amongst the people of God and into any individual church, it's a major victory for him. Because false teaching goes against the truth. God works in us via the truth. Therefore, we must always be guarding against false teaching. All right, And there are the warnings. Now while we're on this, let's ask ourselves, what was the attitude of Paul to false teachers? Because today, on the Christian scene, and I'm talking about even, you know, like the, the general Bible-believing Christian scene, the popular policy with false teaching is to go soft on it. It doesn't matter. Unity is everything. Now, this is the policy, this is the mayor in which we are living today, in this country, all right. Now we've got to ask ourselves, what was the attitude Paul the Apostle took about people who were teaching false doctrines? 
Was he kind of, oh, well, I mean, you know, well, bless them, love them, you know, uh, you know, have fellowship with them, don't, don't get into arguments, unity is everything. Was that his attitude? Right, go to Galatians, and let's see what Paul the Apostle, what his attitude was towards these people. Not even towards the false teaching, but <coughs> towards the people who were doing the false teaching. All right. And we're going to look from, uh, through Galatians, and Galatians, Paul is dealing with the false teaching of the <laughs> circumcision party. The circumcision party were genuine, born-again Christians. They were Jews who had become Christians. But their false teaching is that they believed that the law of Moses was, was to stand for all time, that they and everyone else had to be subject to the law of Moses whole lot of it. And what they were saying is that even Gentiles who become Christians, it's not enough to become a Christian, they also had to proselytize into the Judaistic faith and therefore had to be circumcised and they had to put themselves under the law of Moses. Now we know that the teaching of Paul was quite the opposite. You're free of the law of Moses, not under it, but these people True believers were putting Gentiles under the law of Moses. Now, Galatians 1, verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Dear, oh dear, Paul is not a good ecumenical man, is he? Go over to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Again, he's talking about the circumcision party. He's talking about his attitude. He says to the Galatians, what are you doing listening to them? He says, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? He says, how can you do what these jerks are telling you to do? They're totally wrong, all right? Now, remember, it's the circumcision party he's talking about. <laughs> he says, I wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves. <laughs> now, that is what Paul wrote to the Galatian church. He says, I wish those who unsettle you, I with their false teaching, would mutilate themselves. Now then, this word mutilate, all right, it's apocopto, and it means to cut off. Now let's see it in one or two other places in the Bible. Go to Mark. First of all, go to Mark, where we're going to see a couple of instances of where Jesus, this word, is used to find out what it means. Mark chapter 9 and verse 43. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Apocopto. And then, in, uh, down in verse 45, uh, 47, he, 45, he says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is exactly the same Greek word that Mark uses in his gospel there. Go over to John, John chapter 18, and we'll see this same word used again wants to make absolutely sure we understand what Paul is saying when he says, I wish those who are unsettling you would um, mutilate themselves. John 18, verse 10, and we read this. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the, the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. There's the Greek word again, apokopto. Now then, can you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I wish they'd go and castrate themselves. He says, that would shut them up, wouldn't it? Now, we're not talking with personal vengeance here. You see, it's a circumcision party. Paul's saying, I wish they'd go all the way. Now, it's not vengeance that Paul is talking about. But what we are looking at is the absolute outrage and anger that he felt towards men who were getting in the way of other people's faith and walk with Jesus through false teaching. Remember that false teaching always robs God's people of freedom. And God has called us to freedom. Therefore, false teaching will always bring bondage. Even if it's false teaching that looks on the outside a bit liberal, it will always ultimately bring bondage. And bondage is the opposite to what God has called us to. Remember, elders are there to protect the freedom of God's people. Therefore, when Paul saw legalistic teachers coming in and putting the saints under bondage, he was angry with them. He was not conciliatory with them. He was angry with them. Let's see as well that Paul, in his crusade against false teaching, i.e. Christians who were teaching wrong things, he was not afraid to name names. Go to 2, two Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. How different this is to the church today. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 14. Right, and he says, remind them of this and charge them before the Lord to avoid disputing about words which does no good but only ruin the, ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is the context here, good teaching, biblical teaching. Avoid godless chatter, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will eat its way like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now here Paul names two Bible teachers on the Christian scene that he knew of, who were dispensing false teaching. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth by holding that the resurrection is past already. They are upsetting the faith of some. Their actual false teaching here is not what we're concerned about. They were teaching false doctrine, which was having a bad effect on believers, and Paul names them. And he says, these men are doing wrong with false teaching. Now then, let's keep reading down there. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And Paul's saying that, you know, the sign of a teacher or anyone with a ministry who's really being, you know, blessed of God, he says the real sign of them has got nothing to do with whether they're teachers or apostles or anything like that. He says it's that they've departed from iniquity that their lives are righteous. And he says that in the context of false teaching. So what we can see is that false teaching is sin. Now, we're not told anyone can make a mistake. We have all believed things that are false. 
we all still do believe things that are false. And as we grow in our knowledge of the Bible, we're standing corrected all the time. But what we're talking about here isn't the fact that you might end up believing something that you later discover to be wrong. It's whether or not, when we are corrected, we admit, oh, I've got that wrong. We're talking here about people who are solid in teaching that goes against the Bible, but they stick to it anyway. That is what we're talking about. All right. Uh, go to Romans, Romans 16 and start to see the actual advice that Paul gives, you know, to how you handle people who are into false teaching of whatever kind. Romans 16, verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. Now then, there's something that we need to understand here. Let me read this verse, how most Christians wish it had been written. I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties. Avoid them. Now, let me read what Paul actually wrote. He says, who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Now, can you see what we've got here? Elijah was called a, a, a troublemaker, but he was the one who was standing for God's truth. Now, what we've got here is that if you have people who are causing dissension and upset in a church, over their beliefs, which aren't what the Bible teaches, then in that case, those people have got to be corrected. What Paul is saying here, he's not talking about people who are rocking the boat with the truth. He's talking about people who are rocking the boat with doctrines that aren't the truth. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, say we ended up with someone here, all right, and they were saying, um, I think the Lord wants us to submit to the Catholic Church. And we'd say, bless you, but I think you've got that wrong. Now, if every time they came here, they were kind of stirring up trouble to get us to go and submit to the Pope, then they would be creating dissension in opposition to the doctrine. Because the belief that they're trying to represent isn't what the Bible says. So therefore, if they wouldn't be corrected in time, then obviously you would have to start working on them. And Paul says that finally you've got to avoid them. All right. Now, we're not talking like here about uh, like secondary stuff like, say, the rapture. I mean, if there's someone here, I mean, you know that I believe and I teach, all right, and I believe it 100%, I'm absolutely convinced that, you know, it's what the Bible says, that the rapture comes before the Antichrist, all right? Now, I'm convinced of that. But there are other Christians who think the rapture is afterwards. Now, here's the point. It is no problem if someone is sitting here who believes the rapture is at the end, not at the start. Can you see? That's a secondary doctrine. It doesn't matter. It's not, that's, you don't put people out of the church for believing that. It's purely secondary, all right. Losing salvation. Now, we teach here that salvation can't be lost. But if someone here believes that it can be lost, fine, good luck to you. No one is going to put you out of the church for that. 
I mean, and also, if we did, if you believe you can lose your salvation, well, obviously, you probably have a nervous breakdown because that would mean that you'd lost your salvation as well. But can you see, it's not something that is a purely secondary issue. Even things like baptism. Even if we had someone in our church who really believed that infant baptism is it. It's it. <laughs> infant <laughs> baptism is okay. All right? Now, the point is you're quite free to believe that. I mean, it's not issues like that that we are actually talking about. However, if on any of those issues someone decided to be contentious, by which I mean couldn't leave it alone, I mean, every time you come together, they pray a prayer to the Lord, which is actually trying to correct the rest of us in our doctrine. You see what I mean? And going around collaring people, you've got to believe this. If it got to the point where they were causing trouble, well then, obviously, you would have to actually step in. Because finally, you've got to agree to differ. You see, no problem. Two people can disagree. I can have fellowship quite happily with people who believe in infant baptism. No problem if we discuss it, I'll disagree with it, we'll debate it. But we don't fall out about it, all right? So even if doctrines aren't agreed on in a church, the point is nevertheless there can be peace. And anyone who starts causing trouble over these things is then going to have to be dealt with because they're being contentious. But let me say something else. If you're being contentious about a doctrine, and even if that doctrine, this church, would say you were right, you're still being contentious. You see what I mean? So if we found out that someone here, I mean, say, take, for instance, baptism, that every time they met an Anglican, they were kind of bashing them over the head with it. Can you see? Almost Anglican hunting to have an argument. That is being contentious. And even though we would agree with what you're saying, that is still being contentious. If it comes up, Hold your ground, yes, from the Bible. If they get upset at the truth, that's their problem, not yours. But can you see the difference? If you go in there all guns blazing from the hip, that is being contentious, and that is wrong. And if anyone here was like that, then obviously something would have to be done about it. But also we have the problem, they're secondary things, but today we have the problem of what I would call the fundamental heretics, the false prophets. People like the Bishop of Durham, all right, who deny everything that Christianity is. And it's not just people like the Bishop of Durham, we're talking about well over half of every ordained minister in this country. Now then, go to 2 John. 2 John. And find verse 7. And John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And remember, modernistic theology is precisely that. It denies the truth of there being an objective God who literally became an objective man called Jesus. All right? It denies that. And here... John is saying that anyone who denies that is of the spirit of the Antichrist and a deceiver. He says, look to yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. And believe me, if you get mixed up in false teaching, you'll lose your reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because the rest of your Christian life will be in ruins. That's why. Period. 
Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, i.e. that Jesus was God, became a man, anyone who does not abide in that has, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. Now, listen to this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into the house or give him any greeting. For he who greets him shares his wicked work. He says, don't even let them into your house and don't even greet them. If you see them on the street, you totally ignore them. And he says, if you do greet them, you are sharing in their wicked work because you are condoning false prophets, which is an insidious thing to do. Men like that must be put out of the church, or women like that must be put out of the church if they refuse to repent. We must have nothing to do with them, not even in our houses. Obviously, this is after they've had a time where they've been corrected, and they've had time to actually repent. But if they don't, then this is how we must treat them. Because the real problem is their unteachability and uncorrect ability. You see? They will not be taught. They will not listen. They're believing things that it takes two minutes to prove wrong from the Bible. But nevertheless, they're going to stick with what they believe. Go to Titus, Titus 3 and verse 10. It's not just the modernists, anyone who gets into false doctrine and sticks to it, regardless of being shown they're wrong from the Bible, comes under the same category. And incidentally, a few years ago in a fellowship that I was in, um, in, in fact, something rather unfortunate happened with someone who was a very good friend of mine. Uh, that in the fellowship up there, we had a guy, and he'd been a, a good friend of mine for years. And he'd had a revelation from God that there was no such thing as a trinity. All right? No such thing as a trinity. Now, I mean, I stuck my head in the sand about it for years. You know, I thought, well, if I forget that he believes that, it'll go away. And it never did. And eventually, you just can't avoid it anymore. And so I and others, we, we spoke to him. We went through the Bible. We showed him undeniably in a way that he could not reply to that God is Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. We showed it to him. He couldn't refute what we said from the Bible. We gave him a couple of weeks to go away and prepare his argument against us. All right? And say, so if you can demonstrate that what we've said is wrong, you go away and you show us from the Bible. All right? So he came back a couple of weeks later. He says, I've prayed about it and God's shown me I'm right. Now we had to put him out of the church. And he was a good friend of mine. That wasn't easy. That wasn't easy. It meant I could never speak to him again because he didn't turn away from me. He didn't repent. So sometimes it's difficult, but it's so important that we do this. Titus 3.10, listen to what he says here. As for a man who is factious, after admonishing him once or twice, you see, everyone gets a chance, after admonishing him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is perverted and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, what's interesting about this is that this word here, factious, the Greek word is heresis. And it's heresis that we get the English word heretic from. 
Really, this word factious could also be translated a heretic. And in fact, I believe the King James Version does. And heresis comes from the verb heremio, which means to choose. And what it means is self-opinionated. A heretic is someone who's put his own opinions above the Word of God. Someone who, regardless of what the Bible says, I think this. And you cannot shift them from their opinions. They believe they are right and they have obviously got no intention of ever changing their mind. Can you see? Now that is what a heretic is. A self-opinionated person who puts their own opinions above the word of God. And of course that is someone in total rebellion against God. You see. Go to Acts 20. Just again. Acts 20. One of the things that Paul says in verse 30. He said, from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. After them. <coughs> and you'll find that these self-opinionated people who have these beliefs that aren't scriptural, that what lies behind it is they want to be different and they want to be recognised as being a little bit different. You see what I mean? They're not going to go with the party line. And even if they're in a church that is 100% biblical, they'll still find something to stand against. Can you see? Because they're not willing to just be one of the crowd with the rest of us going along with the truth. They want to be different. In effect, they don't want to be disciples of Jesus. They want disciples to be following them. That is what someone who is factious is all about, all right? Refusing to submit to the truth of the Bible and holding their own wrong beliefs, regardless of what the Bible says. Okay, right, so there's the area of false teaching. Now, what have we seen? We've seen that people who qualify, we're not talking about disagreements on secondary doctrines. You know, we're not saying that you put Anglicans out of fellowship because they're Anglicans. We're not saying that in the slices. We're talking about major fundamental issues. And what we have seen is that if someone qualifies, they get a good chance, all right? Admonish once or twice. You spend time with them. You demonstrate from the Bible beyond doubt that they're wrong. You then give them time to go away, think about it, pray about it, look into the scripture. You give them the chance to be persuaded that they're wrong. But if after all that they still refuse to turn away from whatever false teaching it is they are into, then you put them out of the church, you have nothing to do with them, you do not have them in your house, and if you see them on the street, you do not greet them. Now that is the whole area of the teaching about false teaching. Right, let's move on to the second one, personal morality, or rather personal immorality. All right, so let's see if any of you qualify for number two. Don't think anyone here qualifies for number one? No, I don't think so. Let's see if we've got any takers for number two. All right, 1 Corinthians 5. Well, you'll soon find out if we have, because they won't be here next week, will they? No, right, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When I started this, I thought, a study on putting people out of the church, I thought, how are we going to get some laughs out of that? But <laughs> nevertheless, we will, we will, we will, we will have our jollies regardless. Right, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. And Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter 
not to associate with immoral men, not at all meaning the immoral of this world, or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But rather, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or robber, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? I people outside the church. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Those who believe, oh, but Christians mustn't judge, must they? Right, okay, here's Paul saying, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Paul says you must judge each other, of course you must. You must do it properly, but nevertheless you must do it. God judges those outside. Drive out the wicked person from among you. Now here's Paul writing to the Corinthians, and they'd written to him and they got a misunderstanding. And they was kind of writing and said, look Paul, if we can't associate with people like that, that means we can't see any of our non-Christian friends, how are we going to preach the gospel? And Paul writes, he says, no, you got me wrong. I'm not saying you mustn't mix with unbelievers who do all that. He says, of course they do all that, they're unbelievers. He said, I said that you mustn't have anything to do with believers who are doing all that. You've got to put them outside the church, drive out the wicked person from among you. Now, what we're talking about here, we have a list of sin, sins, all right, where Paul says, if you've got believers in the church who are doing these, they've got to be put out of the church. But we've got to understand what we're talking about here. We are talking about people who are doing these things and are persisting in them without repentance. Are persisting in them, refusing to admit and acknowledge that the things are wrong. We are not talking about people who are in repentance but still struggling with sin. So what I'm saying is, is this, if someone in this church falls into sexual sin, that doesn't mean that they are out of the church. The question is, are they doing this saying, it's alright, I can do it if I want? In which case, if they don't respond Obviously, then, eventually, they'll be out. But if we're talking about someone who has fallen into sin and is repentant of it, that's not what we're talking about. Can you see that difference? Paul is talking with Pete about people, Christians, who are in willful, unrepentant sin, refusing to admit that it's wrong and get their lives right. He is not talking about people who are still falling into these kinds of sin, yet in repentance of them and struggling an important distinction there to make. Otherwise, all of us would be out of the church, wouldn't it? Is he? Wouldn't we? There are a lot of us. So we've got to understand that distinction. Now, we've got to move on to a principle that we must understand. If you tackle this subject of putting believers out of the church and fail to understand this principle that is in the Bible, you're going to get into all kinds of problems, all right? And the principle is basically this. I call it the principle of knowing better. Go to 1 Corinthians 5, the first part of the chapter. We've read the second part. Now we want the first part of the chapter. 
the context. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to do. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and of a kind that is not found even among pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, what we're dealing with here is someone who is living in a sin, a sexual sin, with his father's wife, all right? And this Christian who's in the church is living in this sin, and Paul says, of a kind that is not even found among the pagans. Now, the point is that here's a man who knows 100% beyond doubt that what he's doing is wrong. And even the most wretched pagan in Corinth, where he lives, would look on and say that is wrong. Therefore, that man knew better, and Paul says, remove him now. Immediate judgment. No time of grace whatsoever. Can you see the reason? He knew better. There was no excuse. Even as a pagan, even in his unconverted state, he would have known what a terrible thing that was that he was doing. So Paul says, right, you stand no truck with this out now. All right. However, let's now go on into chapter 6. Chapter 6. And let's start reading from verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ, i.e. my body, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one with her? For, as it is written, the two shall become one. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is against the body, is outside the body, sorry. But the immoral man sins against his own body. It's the only way you can sin against your own body, fornicate or commit adultery. It's the only sin against the body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? All right, so we can all stop bashing smokers over the head with this verse. It's talking about immorality, all right, not smoking. <laughs> Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, what is Paul dealing with here? Well, he's writing to them. He's dealt with the bloke who's living with his father's wife, and he says, him out. No excuse. But Paul has been informed as well that a lot of the Corinthian blokes were going to prostitutes. Now, I want you to see that his approach is slightly different for them. And the reason is this. You see, the prostitution that Paul is talking about here is temple prostitution. The Greeks who lived in Corinth who got converted Remember, Corinthian church had Jews and Greeks in it. The Corinthian Greeks, their background was the temple of Diana, and it was a really degenerate religion. You know, I mean, it really was orgies down the temple. I mean, I'm not kidding. They, they, they were drunken, gluttonous, sexual orgies. That was their worship. Wonder what they'd feel like in a dead Anglican church, you know. <laughs> that was their worship, and it was a normal part of their lives. That is what they've been brought up in. Even as children, 
They had been trained by their parents in sexual technique ready for the temple prostitutes. It was a normal part of life for them, rather the same as for us, you know, sort of like, you know, being brought up to let a lady go through the door first, is that they had been taught to have sex with the temple. What they were doing was absolutely natural in their lives before they got converted. The society they lived in practiced this without a second thought, all right? Therefore, for that reason, Paul gives them a lot more time in order to realize that what they were doing was wrong and to repent of it. The bloke who was living with his father's wife, as soon as Paul heard about him, he says, out, out, he knows better. But with the temple prostitution thing, Paul still says, look, it's wrong and it's got to stop. But because it had been such a natural part of their lives, he gives them a much longer time of grace to realize it was wrong and to get it right with God. Can you see? It's the principle of knowing better. And in fact, we'll turn now to the end of 2 Corinthians, all right? And by the time Paul wrote his next letter to them, 2 Corinthians, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and starting from verse 21, he says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. Um, I've lost my place. Yes, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned before and have not repented of the impurity, immorality and licentiousness which they have practised. This is the third time I am coming to you. Any charge must be sustained by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's the principle again. All right, let's make sure false accusation doesn't happen. I warned all those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Now, can you see, when he writes 1 Corinthians, he says this has got to stop, all right? But it's only at the end of 2 Corinthians, which is quite a time later, that he says, now your time of grace is up. If you haven't repented, you're out the church. Now, do you see the principle of knowing better? The temple prostitution thing in the Corinthian church got a fair time of grace because it was so natural to them. It would never have occurred to them when they got converted that, you know, being immoral was wrong. And why should it have occurred to them? Can you see? There's no reason. There's only one way we know anything is sin, and that's because the Bible says it's sin. Therefore, if you get someone who's converted, how are they supposed to suddenly get a revelation that immorality is wrong? Can you see? They are probably need to be taught that. So therefore, they got a time of grace in order to deal with that sin and get it right. But had they got to the end of the time of grace and not got it right, when they had no more excuse, it had been shown to them 100% from the word of God it was sin, if they then still wouldn't repent out of the church. But the man living with his father's wife, he was out immediately because he knew it was absolutely without excuse all the time. Now, can you, have you got that principle? The principle of knowing better. All right. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5 then, if you've got that. 
I mean, what basically that means, if we have someone converted in this fellowship, all right, and uh, they haven't been Christians, and maybe, let's stick to the sexual thing, maybe they've been very, very sexually immoral, and most people out there are, believe me. <coughs> well, if after he's been a Christian for a few months, we find that he's still sleeping around, or she is still doing it, well, first of all, let's ask us the que you know, ask the question, oh, have we told him it's wrong? I mean, they might not even know it's wrong. So if they don't know it's wrong, you can't tell them off. So what you then do is you show them from the Word of God it's wrong, give them time to understand it fully, sort it out before God and realise it's wrong. See, and then if they repent, no problem. But if they don't, then they're out. But if we found we had someone in the fellowship who was still into armed robbery, out immediately. Can you see? Can you see the difference between those two things? One is obviously wrong, the other is only obviously wrong to a mature Christian. Right, okay, we got that. Back to 1 Corinthians 5, all right. Now we've seen what Paul says, drive them out of the church, don't even eat with them, all right? That is the principle that we're up against here. Anyone into these things who is willful, unrepentant, knows better, had their time of grace, they're driven out of the church, you ignore them, you don't have anything to do with them. Now let's look at the list. So far we've got immorality, we've got greed, we've got idolatry. Put in with idolatry the occult, alright, because the Bible latches those two together, the occult. Reviler, now I'll define that according to the dictionary, one who defames with improper speech. A gossip, a slanderer, a false accuser. What you will call a thoroughly bad mouth. If someone is a real bad mouther, do you know what I mean? Always bad mouthing people. Then, again, correction, time of grace. If they can't get that right, they're out. Why? Rips church to pieces. Rips a church to pieces. We've got drunkard and we've got a thief. All right? A robber. And bung him with that, fiddling your taxes bunging with that dodging community charge. We can't have any mucking about here. This is 100% what the Bible says. You know, we're not going to make, you know. I mean, can you imagine someone who's fiddling their taxes, you know, sort of looking at someone. Maybe they find out that sort of say maybe, uh, you know, old, old, old John got short of money and so he went and did a heist. <laughs> All right. Now, can you imagine a Christian in the church sitting there all haughty because one of the church has robbed someone or stolen something if they're fiddling their taxes. You're talking about two thieves. Can you see? We've got to be absolutely with what the Bible says on this. So then, there's a list. Remember, not people who fall into these things, not people struggling, but people into these things willfully, unrepentantly. Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, If anyone refuses to obey what we say in this letter, note that man, and have nothing more to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not look on him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now here, Paul says that people must be dealt with if they go against, if they're behaving contrary to apostolic injunction. Paul says, anyone who's going against the teaching that we're handing out to you, 
note that man, have nothing more to do with him. And I mean like if you go back into a verse 6, he says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. Uh, one of the problems they had in the um, church here is that they'd have false teaching about the second coming, and Paul has to correct that. And um, part of the false teaching was, right, Lazar, in the tribulation, it's going to be any minute, any minute, which of course it could be any minute, all right. But so convinced were these people that a whole load of them had thought, oh, oh, I've got a good idea. And they were saying, if the law's coming any minute, what's the point of going to work? What's the point of getting up in the morning and going to work? Can you see? And they were using it as an excuse. They weren't working and they were expecting the church general fund to be feeding them and providing for them. Do you see? Paul says, no, not on your life. And he says, if a man shall not work, neither shall he eat. He says, if you've got jokers in the church doing that, he says, let them go hungry for a week. They'll soon go out and get a job. Can you see? But the principle is there, it's still the same thing. All right. So Paul says you've got to do with, you know, treat people like this if they're, you know, sort of not getting right with God and if they're going against apostolic injunction. What is apostolic injunction? It's the New Testament. Do you see? It's the New Testament. Any believer who is willfully not having their lives right before God in the full knowledge of what the Bible teaches, then that person must not remain in the church. So what we got is this. Believers whose beliefs and or personal lives are at variance with the Bible and who refuse to repent when taught and corrected are to be put out of the church and we must have nothing to do with them. Again, we're not talking about people struggling with sin in repentance, but the willful and the unrepentant as well. All right. We're not talking about the churches who have an incentive scheme to holiness, whereby one sin and the elders kick you out. I mean, we're not talking that. We're talking about willful sin. All right. And remember that the reason that they're put out of the church is not just because of the actual sin that they're not willing to repent of, but they're put out of the church for the absolute rebellion of refusing to repent. Is it? And rebellion must not be tolerated in the church. It must not be tolerated. Hence this muscle, this last resort muscle that the Holy Spirit has built into the teaching of the Bible. Rebellion on that scale is the opposite of the Christian life. It is satanic. And people rebelling against the authority of God to this extent in a church are simply going to contaminate the whole church satanically. Let's turn now very, very quickly to the uh, thing about elders in sin. All right, elders. Are there special rules for elders? Just go to James, the book of James, and in James verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Lot, let, <laughs> Lot net many. <laughs> let not many of you become teachers, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. So there's a different set of rules here that apply to elders. Now go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy and chapter 5. Now then, verse 17, Paul starts talking about elders, that the elders who rule well, blah, blah, blah. Go down into verse 19. 
Never admit any charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, that, that, that seems a fair rule, doesn't it? I mean, anyone who's discontented in the church because an elder's told them off can start making up, oh, he did this and he did that, and oh, he raped me in the car on the way home, you know, can they? No, charges against elders must only be accepted. They mustn't even be considered unless it's on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, verse 20, as for those, and we're talking about elders now, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without favour, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor participate in another man's sins. Keep yourself pure. Now what we've got here is that if an elder gets into serious sin that needs to be corrected, when, with people who aren't elders, the first approach is private. With an elder, the approach is public by the other elders. They are to be rebuked publicly because they have public authority. Let's see this working. Go to Galatians again, Galatians 2. And Paul speaks of an occasion when he had to do this. But remember, this is public rebuke of elders by elders. All right. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas, or Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood, conde stood condemned. For certain men came from James, and he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, either circumcision party, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision. And with him the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, and then... Paul rebukes him. So what's happened is that here comes the Apostle Peter and Paul's there. Peter's eating with the Gentile believers, quite right. This circumcision party come along and Peter gets a bit worried about them. He thinks, well, they're quite important Bible teachers. So he withdraws from the Gentiles. Paul sees him, Peter's being a hypocrite. He's being an absolute hypocrite. And in front of the whole lot of them, Paul calls him a hypocrite. And he says, you're being a hypocrite, Peter. And bless him, Peter repented. But that was absolutely right. Now, if no repentance, in a situation like that, if the elder does not get his life in order, then he is obviously de-elderized and he is put out of the church. Period. The same rules apply. Now then, should that person who's been de-elderized and put out of the church, all right, because of eldership or sin, being an elder, that he refused to repent of, should they later repent, all right, then they must be immediately restored to the church, but they must not be immediately restored to eldership. They've got to prove themselves all over again. Hence, Timothy says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. He's talking about laying on of hands appointing elders. He says, don't be hasty. So that if an elder has fallen and been put out of the church, yeah, if he repents, he's back in the church, but he's not automatically an elder. Do not be hasty in making him an elder again. So you've got to make sure that that part of his life uh, really has been dealt with by God. Right.
Okay, let's move on to the uh, subject now of the reasons for excommunicating people. Why? And there are two. There are reasons in regards to the church, the actual church they're put out of, and there are the reasons uh, in regards to the believer who has actually been put out of the church. Let's do the reasons in regards to the believers themselves, i.e. the people or person who is put out of the church. Now then, the discipline of putting someone out of the church is reforming, it is not vengeful. It is reforming, it is not vengeful. It is ultimately to bring them to repentance. The very thing you've been trying to do all along, but they refuse to do. Go to 1 Timothy, should be in it, 1 Timothy 1, verse 19. He says, holding faith and a good conscience, oh sorry, <laughs> he says, by rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. You'll see the point about being delivered to Satan in a moment. But it's so they might learn not to commit that sin anymore. Back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. He says... Talking about this man who was living with his dad's wife, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now then, what you've got, I mean, this thing handing over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I mean, we've seen two instances here that Paul talks about. What are we talking about? Well, you see, the thing is that if you put someone out of the church, you put them beyond the protection of their church. Because they're beyond the protection of their church, therefore Satan can attack them more powerfully than he could normally. And remember, Satan just loves attacking Christians. He loves it because he hates us. So you put them out of the church, they lose the protection of the church, Satan can then attack more powerfully than he normally can, and he can make their lives an absolute misery. The person who's been put out of the church loses all their friends at their fellowship. Their closest friends they lose because no one in the church will have anything to do with them. So they've lost all their closest friends at one fell swoop. They are now isolated. They are alone. They are under severe satanic attack. And they are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now that must be very unpleasant. And the reason that it's unpleasant, the idea is to make it as unpleasant as possible for them to remain in unrepentance. And to make it a tempting prospect for them to be in fellowship again. So what we're saying is, putting people out of the church, and with Satan piling in, and stuff like that, what you're doing is you're making being out of fellowship with God a costly affair. It starts to cost them something. And it makes it harder for them to remain unrepentant. Because they're going through such hell. 
and it makes it easier for them to swallow their pride and to repent. If believers can be in willful sin and everyone carries on with them as normal, where's the incentive to repent? None. But if they lose all their friends and ends up with Satan doing a hatchet man job on them, they'll soon start thinking again. It's no guarantee that they'll repent, but my goodness, it's a good incentive to repent, isn't it? Lose all your friends? My goodness, terrible. And also, we kid ourselves to think that we can be in unrepentant sin and in fellowship with God at the same time. We can't. We kid ourselves if we think that. Putting someone out of fellowship actualizes the truth. You see, if you're out of fellowship with God, you're out of fellowship with his people. You see? So therefore, someone's in willful sin, they're out of fellowship with God, therefore they're out of fellowship with his people. So what do his people do? They kick them out and say, right, you can't come anymore because you're not right with God. And that really gets the point home to them, doesn't it? And it makes the self-delusion that I'm all right, really, harder to remain under. And then obviously, if no eventual repentance, then in God's time, and if God chooses then it can lead to the sin unto death. But that is purely up to God. Just go to 1 John. Let's actually see that, 1 John. 1 John 5, verse 16. <clears throat> 1 John 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin which is not mortal, he'll ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal. There is sin which is mortal. I do not say that one is to pray for that, I sin unto death, there is sin unto death. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not unto death. Now, people get confused about that when he says, I do not say that you should pray for that. Basically, what he's saying is obviously if someone has been put out of fellowship, then the church must be praying for them to be restored. But if God knows it's going to be an eventual sin unto death job, John says, I do not say that you should pray for that i.e. a church can't put someone out of the church and then gather around and say, oh, I think the Lord's leading us to pray that God will knock him off. <laughs> Can you see? That's God's decision, not ours. So John says, I do not say you should pray for that. All right. Okay, there's the sin unto death. All right. So then, they're the reasons for putting someone out of the church in relationship to themselves. Now the reasons in relationship to the church. And it's this. Unrepentant sin or doctrinal error is like a cancer which spreads through a fellowship and contaminates the innocent parts of the body as well. Remember we saw that thing about Hymenaeus and Alexander, what they were up to, and Paul said like gangrene, and it spreads like a cancer. Now the point is cancer must be cut out of the body. Because if it isn't, the rest of the body will be affected. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 15. He says, See to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it the many become defiled. Is it? a root of bitterness that springs up in the church, and by it the many become defiled. Go back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. And this is Hymenaeus and, and Philetus again, who have swerved from the truth, and he says they are upsetting the faith of some. Can you see, 
their sin was causing other people problem as well. Back into 1 Corinthians 5. When Paul uses a bakery kind of analogy. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 to 7, he says, Your boasting is not good. This is in the context of his teaching about putting people out of fellowship. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Now, what do we want to be? Do we want to be an old lump or do we want to be a new lump? And what he's saying is that if you, get a, if you get sin, even in individuals that isn't being dealt with, then like a little bit of leaven, it spreads through the whole lump. All right. So therefore, sin has got to be dealt with because it will infect others. And remember, elders are there to protect and defend your freedom in the Lord. Someone into willful sin will rob you of your freedom and will contaminate the whole church. And also, it maintains discipline. Do you remember what Paul said about the elders? Rebuke them. If they get out of line, the other elders are to rebuke a, a, a kind of a recalcitrant elder in public so that the others may stand in fear. It maintains discipline. And what we've got to believe is, is this. If elders are going to be dealt with like that, then no one else is going to be spared. Can you see? No one is going to get away with unrepentant, willful sin. And if anyone thinks that they're going to, well, my message is don't even think about it. Because we're talking here, remember, the last resort muscle that God has built into the structure of the church through his word to protect the innocent from people who are willfully, willfully, out of fellowship with God. All right. The whole idea of putting people out of the church is to restore them to repentance. All right. It is restorative. It's not a vengeful thing. Go to Matthew 18. Back to the teaching of Jesus about it. Matthew 18. Where we interesting get these verses, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. These verses taken out of context by every charismatic book you've ever read about the binding and the loosing. Here we see their context. If someone is put out of the church, then the church must be taking authority over that situation as a church to pray them back. And notice as well that this isn't amongst the elite elders. This isn't done behind closed doors in smoke-filled rooms where only the elders know what's going on. This is a church matter. This isn't just for the elders to know. And then the church has got to come together and they have really got to be praying that person back, all right? And remember, public repentance will be needed from anyone whose sin has been publicly against the church, all right? Now then, so what happens if the person who's been put out of fellowship does come back to the Lord? What happens if they do repent? So, they've been kicked out of the church, they're out, they've been told, you can't come back until you've repented of this sin. What happens when they come back? Well, go to 2 Corinthians 2. When Paul deals with just this situation, it may or may not be the bloke who in 1 Corinthians he told them to put out the church. It may or may not be. That's not important anyway. It's someone who was put out of the church and who's repented. All right? So then, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, If anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to you all. 
For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excess, excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. What I've forgiven, I have forgiven anything. It has been for the sake of the presence of Christ to keep Satan from gaining the advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And that what we got here is this. If someone, even if they've been put out of the church, if they repent, then there is full and immediate restoration. It is to be forgiven and it is to be absolutely forgotten. And it is not to be held against that person as a black mark. Can you see? It is never to come up, oh well, but remember you've been put out of the church before. Can you see? It is absolute total forgiveness. It is wiped out. So even if someone has had to be put out of the church, if they repent and come clean, they're brought back into the church and the whole matter is forgotten. And it is not held against them as a black mark. Just go to 2 Corinthians 7. Let's see the attitude. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8. He says, Even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. What Paul is saying here, he says, look, he said, I had to be tough with you over this, because you had to be tough with these people in your church. And he said, I was tough with you and I needed to be tough with you and it was right that I was tough with you. He says, and I don't regret I was tough with you because it worked. He says, but I do regret I was tough with you because I know it hurt and I don't want to hurt you. Now, can you see, what we're talking about here is that when discipline, in whatever form, is needed in the church, then there's going to be sorrow inherent in it, in the hearts of the people who have to deal with it. It's necessary and they'll do it, but they won't do it willingly. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a church where the elders kind of underneath can't wait for the next excommunication? You know, they're kind of looking out for it, and they're in there like lightning. You know, the slightest thing. Now, wouldn't that be horrendous? I mean, this isn't something that we, this is something we do if it's necessary because the Bible says, because it's for the person's and the church's ultimate job, uh, ultimate good. There must be no relishing it at all. And I've said this before in the course. I mean, we're told to correct each other. But my goodness, I've said it before, if you enjoy correcting people, if you're one of these people who corrects at the drop of the hat, then, then, then stop correcting. Stop correcting. Can you see? It's by definition showing a wrong attitude. A heart of love will correct only if it has to. And even then it will do it reluctantly. It will do it, but it will do it reluctantly. So what we've seen is this. There must be and there will be discipline in this church no one is exempt. Remember the bit we read in 1 Timothy 5? Paul says that show no partiality to anyone. 
No one is exempt from this, all right? It applies to all of us. There must be and there will be discipline in this church. And when it comes to willful, unrepentant sin, all right, in the life of any individual who is part of the church, whether it's false teaching, false doctrine, or whether it's personal sin of a moral nature, bitterness, resentment, sexual, you name it, whatever it is, if it's in that list or whatever, then believe me, it will be dealt with because we are in submission to Jesus and it will be done. We will do what the Bible says and we will do it for your good and we will do it for the good of the whole church. We won't shrink from it. We've got that muscle. It's there in the last resort and you now know the rules for it, okay? And it is going to work amongst us. There is a time when you're dealing with willful sin for people to be put out of the church and made outcast until such time as they repent. Now, I just want to say one more thing at this point, because all this is very, very straightforward for us, okay, as a church. If someone gets out of line, false teaching or moral stuff, no problem, then the church will put them out. But many, many Christians, all right, and I'm not so much thinking now of people here, but these tapes go out and, and it applies to quite a few people, is that they're in a situation where because they're members of churches which are out of line, they are having to have fellowship with people who ought to be put out of fellowship, but the churches won't put them out of fellowship. Can you see what I mean? Whether we're talking morality or whether we are talking false teaching, what does a believer do if they're sitting in a church where they know that within the broad confines of their church, false teaching or immorality or sin is tolerated, and yet because they're just a pleb in the pew, can do nothing about it because the authorities of the church won't put the culprits out of the church. What can they then do? Well, okay, we've seen the principle. The principle is anyone in sin in the church, the church must drive out the wicked person from amongst them. But if you, have, if you don't have the power in the church to do that, and the church is siding with the people who ought to be put out of fellowship, what do you do then? You can't drive them out because you've got no authority to drive them out. Well, then drive out the wicked person from among you. That biblical principle doesn't apply. But I'll tell you the one that does come out from among them and be ye separate. If any believer is attending a church which embraces and allows either false doctrine or immoral standards to whatever degree, then those believers must leave those churches. Now I'm going to make a statement. Anglican church, definitely. The Anglican church uh, supports and procreates modernistic doctrine. It, may, it puts the top, you know, it puts people into the, the top positions who totally deny the deity of Jesus, who are outspokenly and openly, unrepentantly homosexual. Easy. Now, there's nothing that the Anglican in the pew can do. You must get out of the Anglican church. You must come out from among them and be separate because you are having fellowship and condoning that sin and God will hold you accountable for doing it. 
The Catholic Church, yes, same thing, the false teaching. And not just all the Mary stuff, okay, but also the Anglican Church's chockers with the modernistic doctrines. At least the standard Anglican says Jesus is God. It's just that, sorry, the standard Catholic agrees that Jesus is God, but the problem with the standard Catholic is that it's Mary who really counts, not Jesus. But there are many in the Catholic Church who also deny that Jesus is God. The modernism is in there as well. The Methodist Church, same boat, all right? And the same with, for instance, the United Reformed Church. Here are four churches which allow and sanction and condone either false teaching or immoral leaders. Now, the Catholic Church doesn't condone the immoral bit, all right, but the point is whether it's either or or both and, those churches represent one or the other, and you've got to get out. And believe me, the Baptist Union is not very hot today either. I mean, I had a lunch at Baptist Union a few years ago. I was invited up there. I had lunch with all the big boys. There I was, little, little pleb me. And here are all the big blokes, all right? And there I was, sitting having lunch, witnessing to one of them because he wasn't a blooming Christian. <laughs> he wasn't a Christian. And I sat there having lunch with a top Bob Baptist Union Baptist minister who wasn't a Christian. And I had to sit there and try and witness to him. Absolutely unbelievable. So therefore, they are the rules that apply. If you are not in a position to put people out of the church whose life goes against the Bible, then the only choice you have is you must leave that church. To remain in it, you are simply having fellowship with the very believers that we've seen tonight the Bible says you must not have fellowship with. Okay, so there you have it, putting believers out of fellowship. We will carry on next time.